This is the Casting Lots podcast, and you're listening to Unschooling Scholars. Interesting. So I just learned something new. Um, anyways, I, I was saying that uh, tonight's show is going to be a really good show. We're going to be discussing sourdough. And for those that um, follow Scott at Bards FM, you know that he's been talking about a sourdough uh, revolution. And so a couple of months ago, he had started, um, you know, telling everybody to make sourdough and and so when um, I first started making sourdough, I honestly had no idea what I was doing. I looked up different recipes, and um, <clears throat> over the past couple of months, I've I've grown my sourdough, which I've named PETA. And and if, for those of you that know what PETA stands for, it's a pain in the you know what, um, because it really it's like a child. You have to feed it, and you've got to take care of it, and love it, and talk to it, and pray over it. Um, and so tonight I'm just going to kind of share like what I've done and, and I'm by no means, you know, a perf you know, perfect at this. I'm not an expert at sourdough making, um, but I will just share like some of the recipes that I've used and, um, you know, the techniques that I've learned and things that work and things that don't work. And I'll tell you, when I first started, I was a mess. I had no idea what I was doing. And for those of you that know a little bit about sourdough, um, basically it's natural yeast that grows it. And so I had it in a shallow bowl with a towel over it and it just, it went everywhere. So that's why I decided to name it PETA because I was like, oh, this is, this is just absolutely crazy. So um, before we get started, I'm going to go ahead and just open us in a word of prayer. So if you would, please just bow your heads. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly tonight just to, to thank you so very much for, for all the many blessings that you have given us, Lord. Um, we thank you for for the fellowship that we have and and for the blessings, the food that you have given us, Lord, the the knowledge of of how to make bread and to break bread and um, share it with others, Lord. We thank you for just the the capability to to learn and to share the things that our gifts that we have with others, Lord. Um, I just ask that you be with us here tonight. I ask that you um, guide me tonight to speak your word, Lord, to to help those who are looking to learn how to make bread or um, to just, you know, they're, they're looking for answers, Lord. I pray that they find you. Um, I know many are struggling right now. Um, 
and that their hearts of stone will turn to hearts of flesh, Lord. Um, and for those who are struggling, either financially or mentally or physically, Lord, I ask that you be with them and continue guiding them and protecting them, Lord. Um, in these times of uncertainty, we know that the days just seem to keep getting crazier and crazier, Lord. So we just ask that you continue putting your hedge of protection around all of us, Lord. And for those who will listen later on, Lord, just be with them. And for whoever uh, is meant to hear this message tonight, Lord, I pray that they do. And I pray that those who are seeking you will find you, Lord, um, because we know that through your son, Jesus Christ, all things truly are possible, Lord. We, we've witnessed so many miracles um, just praying in your son, Jesus' name. And we thank you for sending your son here to die for us and for our sins so that we could spend an eternity with you someday, Lord, in heaven. And until you call us home, we pray that we continue making you proud and just being the messengers that you need us to be, Lord, to spread your word and your love with those who need it more. Um, and we just say all of this in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so, um, as I said, we started doing this sourdough. And um, when I first started again, I didn't really know where to start. I was very, very intimidated by the thought of growing a sponge or a starter or a mother. There's so many different terms for it. And so I started asking around if anybody had any recipes for a good sourdough starter. Um, and, you know, I knew that it would probably need yeast and other things like that. So um, I did find a recipe and it actually required store-bought yeast. And so I used that. And like I said, it was a mess. Um, I had it in a, a shallow bowl and it just went all over my cheesecloth that I had. And I was like, there's got to be an easier way to do this. And it was just, it was a mess in the beginning. And I started talking to a couple other people and I figured out how to really take care of it. And um, now I have this big gallon uh, ceramic jug in my fridge that I have the mother starter in. Um, and then I also have a couple um, crocks on my counter um, that I use for just, you know, baking bread or uh, I have a pizza dough upstairs, a sour pizza dough. Um, that I'm going to be using tonight after the show for the kids. So there's just so many different recipes you can make with your starter and with the, the discard, and we'll talk about that too. Um, so before I really get started, I found this book, and you know, I obviously homeschool the kids, and um, thrift books, that's my go-to for everything. I found this really cool book. It's called Skillet Bread, Sourdough, and Vinegar Pie, and it talks about cooking in pioneer days. And um, this is such a cute book. It's got a, a lot of pictures in here, but there's recipes and and um, it's just a really fun book. And uh, one of the recipes they have in here, obviously, is sourdough. So I'm going to give a little kind of background of how that all started here um, in the United States. So it says, uh, when you hear the word camping, you probably think of roasting marshmallows, cooking burgers and hot dogs over a fire and sleeping in a cozy tent. But would camping be this much fun if you and your family had to do it every single day for up to six straight months in all kinds of weather with limited food and fuel? This is what the pioneers who traveled on the Oregon Trail did in the mid-1800s. Starting in 1843, large groups of pioneers left Independence, Missouri and wagon trains and headed west to the Oregon country, not officially a territory until 1848. 
Each covered wagon, pulled by a team of oxen, moved at a rate of two miles, which is 3.25 kilometers per hour. So it took these immigrants six to seven months to cover just over 2,000 miles. Because it took so long, wagon trains had to leave in the early spring, no later than the beginning of May, to reach the mountain passes before snow blocked their way. Packing food, planning, and preparing six months of meals for their families was a major task for pioneer women. They knew there was no way to keep their food cool, and there were a few places on the trail to replenish their supplies. These pioneers were not the only ones who had trouble fixing meals in rugged circumstances. In 1849, when gold was discovered in California, it was mostly men who hurried across the Oregon Trail or sailed across and around South America and up the California coast to the gold fields. When these gold seekers reached the rough mining camps, they had to fix their own meals out of a meager selection of food. Then, after the American Civil War ended in 1865, another type of pioneer ventured out west. He was called a cowboy because he drove massive cattle herds from Texas to northern ranges. During these long, dusty trail rides, a male cook would follow in a chuck wagon full of food staples to use in preparing meals for the hungry cowboys. Many pioneer men and women kept detailed journals of their day-to-day lives, and from these we have learned what was eaten and how these three groups of pioneers prepared meals in harsh environments. The recipes included in this book use modern methods and equipment without losing any authentic taste. At the end of each recipe is a note describing how the meal was fixed in pioneer days. Since you'll be working with hot cooking appliances and sharp utensils, you'll need an adult's assistance. To prepare the recipes for a class project, an appendix at the end of the book will tell you how to increase ingredients. So take a taste of what pioneers ate when they opened up the West in America in 1843 and 1889. It gives a little... Um, talks about the Dutch oven. And the Dutch oven is something that I really, really enjoy using when um, I am making my sourdough bread. Uh, in, in the book, it says, this round cast iron pot with three legs and a lid was the most useful piece of cookware on the trail. It came in different sizes. And if a pioneer had more than one, the Dutch ovens could be stacked <clears throat> on one on top of another in the campfire. Inside was placed a stew, a roast, bread, or a pie. Anything that was normally baked in an oven at home could be baked in a Dutch oven over an open campfire. And then... I also had a thing called skillet bread, which I'm kind of curious to try this too. Um, <clears throat> so it says, baking bread and pies over a campfire. Though the wind on the trail often blew mosquitoes and sand into the bread dough, Baking was done every day over an open fire, no matter what the weather. Bread was the number one food eaten on the Oregon Trail, and sometimes the only thing when supplies ran low during the last leg of the journey, or when travel was so hurried there wasn't time to fix a meal. Quick breads, made without yeast, like skillet bread, and bread on a stick were baked on because they didn't take long. Bread on a stick was made by mixing water and flour right in the flour sack. A stick was then placed into the bag and twisted with the wet dough until some stuck to the end. Then it was placed in the ground by the fire and turned a few times to keep it from burning. Yeast breads took longer to make because packaged active dry yeast was not available until after 1870. Before that, pioneers had to make a starter of wild yeast, a microscopic plant that travels in the air, by putting equal amounts of flour and water or flour and milk into a container. 
The mixture was set out to ferment when yeast plant cells begin to grow and the batter gets puffy and bubbly in the warmest part of a covered wagon. That mixture, called a starter, was used to make salt rising bread, a fine grain loaf with a cheesy flavor, and other types of yeast breads. Uh, Solaritus, a chemical leavening, was used to these was added to these breads because the unstable wild yeast, a bio biological leavening, couldn't be dependent on to make the breads rise. In addition to bread, lots of fruit pies, either baked or fried, were cooked on the way to the Oregon country. Wild berries were used when available, but most of the pie fillings were made with the dried apples, pumpkin, peaches, and currants brought along the trip. Fresh fruit was too heavy and perishable to be carried in the wagons. Dried apple pies were made so often that the pioneers grew tired of them and made up this ditty. Spit in my ear, tell me lies, but give me no more dried apple pies. <laughs> I can only imagine my kids, if that's all they had to eat, they, they would just not be happy about that. But, you know, during those days, people did what they had to do to survive, you know, and I think we take so much for granted. Um, you know, especially something as, as simple as, you know, baking bread, we can do this here, but if that's all you had to survive on and, you know, your bread wouldn't, your yeast wouldn't rise, it would just be, uh, I mean, you were literally depending on that, you know? So um, here's another little excerpt from the book. It says, eating on the run for the gold. And this is really interesting. So it says, an amazing thing happened at a sawmill in California on January 24th, 1848. Gold was discovered. A carpenter named James Marshall found a piece of gold about half the size of a pea in the water at Sutter's Mill. Word spread fast. Thousands of men left their families behind in the east to hurry across the Oregon Trail. But instead of heading for the Oregon Territory, they took the California cutoff and rushed through a dirty, thirsty desert and over an awesome range of mountains called the Sierras to reach the gold fields. They had hopes of striking it rich and sending further wives and children or going back home with the sacks of gold dust. Many of these men were city bred and had no knowledge of how to drive a team of oxen pulling a wagon. Many had never hunted for food, cooked outdoors, or done any kind of hard physical labor. In their haste to get going, some men bumped into trees and turned over their rigs. They'd be mad. <laughs> these gold seekers became known as the 49ers because their stampede of pioneers started westward in 1849. Those who took the overland route to reach California had the same problem as earlier pioneers, overloaded wagons. The miners began to call Fort Laramie Camp Sacrifice because of the tons of supplies that were dumped off the wagons at the fort. Barrels of bread, stacks of bacon, shovels, and stoves were taken off to lighten the wagons before crossing over the Rockies. However, in 1850, some men were in such a hurry to reach the gold fields that they ended up packing too little depending on other overlanders to give them food. This behavior set off a tide of starvation and killed many people on the trail in 1850. In 1849 and following 10 years, so many travelers went on to the Oregon Trail that the plains suffered from a traffic jam of people who hunted and killed many of the area's creatures. Also, the livestock the immigrants brought with them stripped the Great Plains of vegetation. Thousands of buffalo were shot for sport and left to rot, taking away the Plains Indians' way of life and food supply. By the late 1800s, fewer than 500 buffalo were left in existence. Some pioneers even shot Native Americans, causing bad feelings to develop amongst the tribes towards the white man. 
Not all gold seekers traveled by land. Thousands came by way of ship, making a 15,000-mile journey around the tip of South America that took five months. There was no refrigeration on board, so the sea biscuits became wormy, and other foods like salted meat, rice, beans, potatoes, salted pork, and turnips became foul. Vinegar and molasses were used to kill the taste of rotting food and bad water on board. Oh my goodness. Those who wanted to shorten their journey by sea chose to stop at the Isthmus of Panama. There was no Panama Canal at the time. There, they crossed a tropical 70-mile land bridge between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans to catch another ship heading up to California. While traveling through this jungle on mules and in canoes, the pioneers ate foods like baked monkey and grilled iguana. There you go, Catherine. Grilled iguana. Cooked by the natives living in the area. These prospectors faced the same risks of contracting dys dysentery from eating and drinking contaminated food and water that overlanders faced. Also, they had the added dangers of becoming infected with malaria, a sometimes fatal disease calling chills, fever, and sweating from the mosquitoes living in the jungle. When the 49ers finally arrived in California and made their way to the Mother Lode, a large area in the hills between the Sierra Mountains and the valleys of California, where great deposits of gold were found, they were both tired and happy. But they soon discovered that holding a pan, an iron container about 18 inches across and 4 inches deep, and moving it around and around in cold mountain stream to separate a small amount of gold from sand, gravel, and water was backbreaking work. Every mining camps called tent cities were located along the rivers. They had limited food supplies. Since the food prospectors didn't have easy access to fresh fruits and vegetables, many suffered from malnutrition and scurvy, serious disease caused by a lack of vitamin C that can be fatal if left untreated. A miner's diet was especially poor when he was down on his luck and had nothing to eat but hardtack and jerky. One miner, E.G. Buffram, wrote about suffering from bleeding gums swollen limbs, and broken blood vessels, which are symptoms of scurvy. He saved his own life by eating wild bean sprouts he discovered growing by his camp. Another miner, John Doble, wrote in his 1851 journal about picking a handful of succulent California lettuce growing along gulches and on the flats in the springtime. He was referring to miner's lettuce, a wild, sweet-tasting lettuce full of vitamin C. It can be found today as if it was growing then in a cool mountain area and foothills in California during the spring. The Native, Americans made, the Native Americans living around the mining camps helped many hungry miners find wild herbs and berries that were safe to eat and told them where to fish for the best trout and hunt for raccoon. A miner who was to wash 160 pans in the streams to come up with enough gold flakes, nuggets, or gold dust to be worth $16, the average price of an ounce of gold. If he had a sack of gold, gold dust was used for money that could go to the use in a store, often a tent, in one of the mining towns that had cropped up around the camps and purchased a supply of preserved foods like pickles, dried fruits, split peas, dried beans, raisins, bacon, flour, sugar, cheese, cornmeal, lard, and canned meats. Everything was expensive. Wheat sold for as high as $1.50 a pound. Now think back, that's in the 1850s, $1.50 a pound. That, I can only imagine what that would be in today's money. A loaf of bread that sold for $0.04 cents in New York sold for $0.75 cents at the mines. Eggs cost as much as $1 to $3 a piece. Apples, $1 to $5 each. 
coffee, $5 a pound. If a miner really struck it rich, he might travel to one of the eateries in Hangtown, first known as Dry Diggins, then Hangtown, and now Placerville, and order a greasy dish called Hangtown Fry. This status symbol meal consisted of fried eggs, fried oysters, and bacon, costing around $7, which was a fortune for those times. Back in camp, away from restaurants and stores, miners had to learn to cook and season their own food from spare supplies. When they wanted to spice up their meals and they'd run out of salt, they'd sprinkle gunpowder on their food. They also made a lot of flapjacks, pancakes, also called slapjacks and flippers, because they were easy and needed only a few ingredients. When miners had more time on Sundays, their usual day off of mining, they brought out their sourdough starter a bubbly mixture of fermented wild yeast, flour, and water, or milk, to give extra punch to their flapjacks into big sourdough bread and Dutch ovens. If a prospector didn't have a skillet to cook with, he used his gold pan. Besides sifting for gold in the pans, miners used them to wash their clothes, feed their mules, and cook their meals. And so um, this sourdough starter that they have, it says, how do the 49ers make sourdough starter? Ingredients. Miners often just mix flour, water, and sugar together and left the mixture to sit in a warm place to make their sourdough starter. Milk and butter were rarely available in the mining camps. The miners started, um, their starters differed from the wild yeast mixtures made by the overlanders because the prospectors used their starters over and over again by feeding them. A sourdough starter could be kept alive for years, and some miners believed it got better with age. And actually, um, I've seen many sourdough starters you can purchase on Etsy and uh, eBay and other places. And some of these are like from the 1800s, probably, you know, during these times. So um, there's a lot of different ways you can preserve your sourdough starters. And we're going to talk about that here. Um, but this recipe calls for water, sugar, and flour. And then it says you can also use buttermilk. But... Um, Truly, again, when I first started researching and, and finding recipes, the first one I started with, I got from a cookbook and it asked for regular yeast to be added with the flour and the water. And the more I researched this, the more I realized that really all you need to make a sourdough starter is water and flour. That's it. You don't need yeast. You don't need sugar. So what happens is... Um, this obviously takes a few days <clears throat> to actually get it going, um, but this recipe that I have here, it's from King Arthur, which they've got a really great book I just got, um, and their website is amazing. And I'll share all the links, and I'm actually putting together a PDF file um, for everybody so I can share the recipes and pictures and links and things like that. Um, but so for starting your starter, um, they recommend that you can use whole wheat flour that's supposed to help, you know, give it a better taste. I just used my own all-purpose flour. That's what I had in the kitchen, and so that's what I used. And so um, this recipe, uh, it takes five days, basically, to get your sourdough where it's ready to, to be used, ready to bake with. So day one, what you do is um, you start with one cup of water and then a half a cup, I'm sorry, a cup of flour and a half a cup of water. And so you combine the flour and the water together and you mix it. It says stir everything together thoroughly. Make sure there's no dry flour anywhere. 
Cover the container loosely and let the mixture sit at room temperature, about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 24 hours. So um, what I did when I started, um, again, I used a shallow bowl for those who weren't here earlier. I started with the shallow bowl and I covered it with a cheesecloth and it was just, it was a mess. So <clears throat> one of the tips that I would give for somebody just starting out, make sure you use a deep bowl. I've got a big wooden bowl that I use now or one of my glass bowls or one of my stonewares. Um, never use metal. Metal will destroy your starter. So again, um, and I don't really recommend plastic, but if that's all you have, it's better than, you know, a metal bowl. Um, and also you don't want to use any metal utensils. Um, use a wooden spoon. Um, I've got silicone spatulas that I really, really like because it helps scrape everything off the sides and it just makes life a lot easier. And I'll share all the, the tools and things that I've bought and, you know, what works for me. Um, so day one, again, you want to make sure everything is thoroughly mixed. Again, that was one cup of flour. I use all-purpose flour. You can use whole wheat flour. Um, there's like pumpernickel flour you can use. Um, just so many different, obviously you don't want to use self-rising flour. I would not recommend that. Um, so you mix it all up and you leave it for 24 hours. And it says day two, you may see no activity at all. Uh, or you may see a bit of growth or bubbling. Either way, discard half of the starter, so about a half a cup, and then add to the remainder a one cup of flour, again, and another half cup of cool water. It says if your house is warm, or a lukewarm water if your house is a little bit on the chillier side. Um, you're going to mix that up real good, and then you let it rest again for another 24 hours. It says by the third day, you'll likely see some activity, bubbling, a fresh fruity aroma, some evidence of expansion. It's now time to begin two feedings daily, as evenly spaced as your schedule allows. For each feeding, weigh out 113 grams of starter. This will be a generous half cup once it's thoroughly stirred down, and then you want to discard any remaining starter. Um, and then it says add one cup of your all-purpose flour and a half a cup of water to the starter. Mix the starter flour, water, and then cover it again. Rest at room temperature for 12 hours, and then you're going to repeat that process. So you do that again um, 12 hours later. And then day four, you want to weigh out 113 grams of starter, and then discard any of the remaining, and then repeat adding that um, cup of flour and then half cup of water. And you're going to basically feed it for the next two days like that. Um, and then day five, it says weigh out 113 grams of starter and discard any remaining starter. Repeat step six. By the end of day five, the starter should have at least doubled in volume. You'll see lots of bubbles. There may be a little rivulets on the surface full of finer bubbles. Also, the starter should have a tangy aroma. And yes, it will stink. When I first had mine, I was like, is this good? Like, is this supposed to... Uh, smell like this because it just it smelled sour obviously it's a sour dough so yes it's supposed to smell like that um and so i did i started noticing all of this and by this time i switched it from my bowl to um, i bought a glass jar um, so that i could see what it looked like and it's amazing just to watch it just grow like it does um 
And so, um, yeah, it, it definitely had an aroma to it. And it says, if your starter hasn't risen much and isn't showing lots of bubbles, repeat discarding and then feeding every 12 hours on a six and uh, seven day if necessary, as long as it takes to create a vigorous, which is risen, bubbly starter. And it says, once the starter is ready, give it one last feeding. Discard all but 113 grams, which is roughly a half a cup. And, you know, that's one thing I've noticed with sourdough. A lot of people, they measure it. I don't measure. I don't have time for that. I'm sorry. I would love to. Um, but <laughs> my schedule does not allow me to sit there and measure on a scale. And that's more dishes. So I wing it, you know, and sometimes a wing in a prayer, you know, that, that that's just seems what worked for us. So, um and then feed it as usual. Let the starter rest at room temperature for six to eight hours. It should be active with bubbles breaking the surface. Um, and for me, the reason why I have such a big gallon now in the fridge is because I hate throwing anything away. Like really, it's like your baby. You know, you have to feed it and love it and take care of it. Um, and so I just, once it was ready, I just kept feeding it every day and it eventually became more, I had to put it, you know, separated in two jars and then two mason jars turned out to be three. And I was like, okay, I have to get something bigger because I just, I didn't want to throw it away. Um, and so I'll share some of the really good um, discard recipes that I have. And then it says, remove however much starter you need for your recipe. Typically, no more than 227 grams, which is about a cup. If your recipe calls for more than one cup of starter, give it a couple of feedings without discarding until you've had made enough for your recipe plus 113 grams to keep and feed again. Um, and then it says transfer the remaining half a cup of starter to its permanent home, a crock, a jar, or whatever you'd like to store it in long term. Feed this reserved starter with uh, one cup flour and a half cup water and let it rest at room temperature for several hours to get going before covering it. If you're storing starter in a screw top jar, screw the top on loosely rather than airtight. Uh, store the starter in the refrigerator and feed it regularly using your normal process. Discard all but a half cup of starter. Feed the remaining half cup with one cup of flour and a half cup. So that that's the one thing to remember. You're just always going to use one cup flour, half cup water. And for me, um, I like to use lukewarm water. I don't like to use cold and I don't obviously use hot water. But I've noticed for me using warmer water really helps it. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's just a tip that I've learned from the different ways that I've made it. So basically just like the first five days is really when you're going to start growing, you know, your baby, your, your little, it's going to be your, your mother is what they call it. Um, and then you can keep feeding it thereafter. Um, but you can really tell like when it's ready to go. Um, Mine sometimes gets a little watery, so I'll add a little bit extra flour when I when I feed it. And I feed mine every day. Like I said, I've got two crocs that I keep on my stove, which I feed every day. Um, and then I have been throwing some of it away because I don't have enough room. Um, and then I feed my mother every Sunday. That's, you know, when we get back from church, I'll come home and I'll make sure that I feed that. And so when you have something stored in the fridge, you know, so say you're not going to bake every week and you don't want to waste it and you put it in the fridge, um, you do have to feed it weekly. And the thing that we found that works is um, you feed it, you know, your one cup flour with your half cup water. And then 
you mix it all up really good and then you leave it sit out for a few hours. I usually leave it out for three to four hours because it's cold and obviously in order for it to rise it needs heat and moisture and all of that. So um, we let it sit out for a few hours and then I'll put it back in the fridge and then let it sit for next week and then I'll just continue feeding it. Um, and you know, so that's ready to go whenever I need it. Um, the tips that I have is buy a crock or storage container. You know, that is just the best thing. I know, um, was it Annie said that she uses a mason jar? Yeah, it's really cool to watch it. It really is. You watch it grow. Um, and just all these bubbles. And, you know, I noticed a lot of times it was really hot this past week. Uh, last week it was really hot and so it was warmer in the house and it would just take off it was just so happy it's like yay warmth um this week not so much it hasn't really been very bubbly and you know don't get discouraged don't think that it's something you did wrong i mean really the temperature affects it so much so um like i said i have a really nice crock and i keep it on my my stove and um that just seems to be a warm place where you keep the light on there and sometimes um you know, I could put it in the the oven. We have a proofing um, button on our stove, so it doesn't really like warm. I mean, it's warmer, but it's not like it's cooking it or anything. And so that will help it rise. It like if I really need it for a recipe. Um, again, if you're going to use a bowl, use a deep glass or stone bowl. That will help so much. Um, uh, wooden or silicone mixing utensils seem to be what works the best for me. Again, plastic. I don't really think it, you know, I mean, I just don't use metal. Um, you can use tea towels, plastic wrap, cheesecloth for proofing. One of the things that I actually read in one of the books that I'll share, it's called Homemade Sourdough, Easy at-Home Artisan Bread Making by Jane Mason. Uh, one of the things that she recommends is using a plastic shower cap. And I know some people are kind of iffy about that because like, oh, I don't want the chemicals getting in my bread. I get it. But let me tell you from my own experience, I have used <laughs> shower caps and it makes everything rise. We made some biscuits for, or not biscuits, we made some, what were those things we made for Easter? Rolls, dinner rolls. And I used it and it just, this shower cap expanded and like the bread went everywhere. It, it was amazing bread. <laughs> it was really good. And again, I know some people are iffy because of the plastic. I haven't had any issues. I think you'd probably be able to smell or taste a difference and I don't, but it really does help because it has the elastic on the side and it holds in all the air. So it's able to bubble. Again, you don't have to use it. It's just something that I read and it's tried and true and it does work. Um, and again, you want to allow plenty of headspace for your starter to rise. So if you have a little crock and it's just enough for one cup and you try to add more, it's going to bubble everywhere when it starts to rise. So make sure that you use um, something that it's going to, um, you know, allow yourself that space because it's going to rise and it's going to fall. You know, that's the natural yeast in it. Um and you always want to bake with a well-fed starter. You know, you can feed your starter like I do. I feed mine every day. I discard some and then I feed more. So that will help with the natural yeast growing in it. And um, if I'm going to go bake a pizza bread, then I will feed my starter, let it sit for a couple of hours and rise and do what it's going to do. And then I'll take a cup of that. So I won't discard any if I know I'm going to actually use it that day. Um, and another thing that I learned the hard way was when you're making your bread, do not over knead your dough. 
um, because you want all those natural air pockets and bubbles. Um, <laughs> I had one and it was like a brick when I made it. And I was like, what did I do wrong? And then, you know, I, I was just reading through and, you know, it's just like chemistry and I've never been good in chemistry. And so I, I've, you know, had to learn the hard way in a lot of different uh, recipes that I've made. So again, you don't want to overneed with this. It's like a baby. You want to be gentle with your dough. Um, and another thing people recommend is you can use a handkerchief if you don't have like any light towels. You don't want to use a heavy cotton towel because it's not going to allow it to be airy and, and bubbly. So, um, you know, like a cheesecloth is, is good to use. Um, and again, there are so many different starter recipes. Because we live in a time where you can just go to the store and buy a packet of yeast, you could create a starter with actual store-bought yeast if you don't really want, you know, to do it the natural way, but it will give it a completely different flavor if you just do it the unnatural way um, of just using flour and water. Um, so some of the materials that um, I would recommend starting sourdough the number one thing on my list is patience. When you are starting a sourdough starter, you have to have patience. I had nobody to show me how to do this. You know, I watched videos and I read things, but I had no idea what the consistency was supposed to look like, what it was supposed to smell like, exactly how I was supposed to feed it. Because for the first three days, mine was really watery. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? And I prayed over it and I just asked God to kind of guide me. And I talked with Scott and I think Kitty and we were in the chat and we we're talking about it and they said to add more flour. And so once I started adding more flour, because I was doing like an even ratio water to flour and I was like, that's not right. Um, and so I just kept adding more flour gradually and that actually ended up helping. And a lot of times you'll see like... Um, like a watery kind of layer on top of it. Just mix that in. You know, some people dump that out. I like to keep it in. I think it's good for the flavor um, because you're going to, after you feed it, you can discard. That's what I like to do. Some people will discard it and then add the, the flour and the water. I like to mix everything together and then throw out the discard before, you know, it starts to rise and do all that. That just seemed to be what works for me. Some people would disagree and that's okay. Um, once you get going on this, you're going to start to see, you know, the different temperatures, your house versus my house and the elevations. I mean, all of that truly does play into how well your starter is going to do. They like warm moisture because that's the natural yeast that they're pulling from the air. So the more moisture in the air, probably, you know, the more yeast you're going to get. Um, obviously you need a flower. Again, there's so many different flowers you can use. I've got whole wheat. I'm going to try one, um, with whole wheat but I've just been using my all-purpose flour and it seems to work just fine. Um, and then you can use water or milk. I have not tried a milk starter yet. That's on my list as well. Um, silicone, wooden spatulas and spoons, you know, those work wonders. Again, I like to use the silicone spatulas because I'm able to scrape all the sides and get everything mixed in really well. Um, a starter jar or crock. Um, Glass, stoneware, wooden bowls are really good. Um, a lame, which is a double-sided blade for the slashes. When you go to make your bread and you form, you know, your final form, um, right before you throw it in the oven, a lot of people, you'll see these beautiful decorations on these breads. And you can get one of those tools or you can use, if you've got a really sharp knife, you can use one of those too. Um, 
proofing bowls. I've bought a couple of those off of eBay and they make really pretty shapes. Uh, sometimes they stick, sometimes they don't. It just really depends on your dough. Um, so many people recommend them and honestly, I can take it or leave it. You know, if you want to be fancy, go ahead and get it. Otherwise, I just put it in my glass bowl or my, my stoneware. Um, <clears throat> Dutch oven. Now, I love my cast iron. I have started using cast iron since COVID. Um, I switched from all my Teflon. I don't use Teflon anymore. So everything that I have now is cast iron. And I've noticed that um, I get a really nice loaf of bread in my cast iron Dutch oven. Um, you can also get the, the enamel coated uh, Dutch ovens. Those are really good. I've got one of those. I use that as well. Because normally when you make... Um, one recipe, it, it, you divide it into two. So I need to use both my cast iron and my uh, enamel uh, Dutch oven. So um, they come out the same, you know, use what you have. Um, what else? A digital scale. Again, if you want to measure it, you want to be precise, by all means, go for it. I have not done that. Um, cooling racks. When you take your bread out, I like to use mine in the cast iron. So I put a piece of parchment paper in there. And so as soon as I, you know, that sucker gets hot, I usually have Matt handle that for me because I'm like, I'm going to burn myself. So as soon as you take it out of the, the oven and you put it on the stove, you can just lift that parchment paper right out and put it on a cooling rack and let it cool for about an hour. Parchment paper too, something, you know, you really probably want to have. Um, heavy duty oven mitts, you need those. Because again, if you're going to use a cast iron Dutch oven, um, they get super hot. And so you want to make sure that you have some good, you know, uh, oven mitts or gloves just to kind of keep your hands from burning like Matt's does. <laughs> um, and then another thing good to have is the dough bowl scraper. Like you really need one of those to, when you're getting that, that sourdough ready, um, you want to scrape everything out of that bowl. And Ryan says, try bowl your flour. Coarse milled flour still has the same brand. Okay. We're going to have to try that. I'm going to write that down. Yeah, I'm curious to try different, you know, flowers and see what works and, and what doesn't. Um, and so we talked about the feeding. You know, really, you need to make sure that you're feeding that starter every day. Because if you don't, uh, chances are your starter is going to die. And you don't want that. Because after all the love and care you put into it, you know, just like a child, it needs to be loved and cared for. Um, some other pans that you can use for baking. Um, I've got a stone terracotta. Um, it, it's like a casserole almost. Um, and I made a, a long loaf of bread in that and it came out really good. Um, I've got a stoneware, um, covered, I don't even know what you would call it. Um, just like a, what is that, Matt? That bowl with the lid that I have. It's like a stoneware. Stone yeah. Just and it, make sure whenever you order it offline, they yeah. I had to order three of them because the first two that I ordered were broken in shipment. So yeah, but I love it. It's a stoneware. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Um, it's vintage, but it has a lid, and I just I'll put the dough in there and bake it in there. Um, a baking stone, you could use that. I've used silicone molds. I've made French bread, sourdough French bread, and that came out really well. You can use bread pans. Um, you can use cookie sheets. You know, there's so many different methods of baking your your sourdough. 
Um, and with all the different recipes and things, you know, sometimes they call for a certain way. Um, but once you really get to going and learning how to make sourdough and you start to experiment with it, you're going to find what you like and what works best for you. Um, I like the French bread with the kids. You know, it's easier to cut in smaller pieces. Um, but I also like, you know, just the, the little round dough ball. You know, those come out really good. Um, so stirring it for your everyday use, like I said, I use a crock or a glass container and I leave it, you know, on my stove and I'll feed it daily. Um, and you throw away your discard. Now for long term, like I said, you can leave it in your fridge um, and just make sure that you feed it once a week, let it get to room temperature and then, you know, let it rise for a couple hours and then you can cover it and put it back in the fridge for next week or until you're ready to use it. And another method that I found, which I had no idea you could even do this, you can dry your sourdough. So let's say you're going, you know, you're lucky and you're going to go away to Europe for a month and you have nobody to, you know, keep your sourdough starter for you. Um, you can dry this out. And when I first saw this, I was like, what? That can't be real. But uh, this is from king arthur's website and again i will share all of these links and all these wonderful things that i found um so it says putting your sourdough starter on hold this is best for long-term storage and you know even now during these times we don't know what the world is you know what lies ahead so even taking some of that mother that you have and just setting some away so it says um let's see so what's the best way to keep your starter happy, healthy, and vibrant when you know you won't be using it for an extended period? Refrigerate it? Nope. Freeze it? No. Neither of the above. The best way to preserve your starter for a couple of weeks, a month, or even years is to dry it. And so this is how the process works. So first you want to feed your starter as though you were going to bake with it. If it's been stored in the fridge, take it out and feed it with equal parts, unbleached all-purpose flour, and lukewarm water. Let it rest, cover it until it becomes very bubbly and healthy looking. Then you're going to spread it out to dry. You spread all of it onto two pieces of parchment paper. It helps to set each piece of parchment on a baking sheet simply for the ease of transportation. And it says you don't want to dry all of it. See the end of this post for advice. The starter should be spread as thinly as possible. Use a spatula, an offset spatula, or a bowl scraper to help the process along. Dry the starter completely until it's brittle. Let the starter dry at room temperature until it's completely and utterly dry. This will take a day if you live in, say, Arizona in a house without air conditioning, or up to three, four, or even five days. It totally depends on the weather. In Seattle in winter, count on a long dry. If you live somewhere humid, you can dry your starter in the oven. But be careful. Rather than turning the oven on to warm it, I'd advise using only your oven's electric light which will produce very gentle, even heat. You don't want to risk turning the oven on and accidentally baking it too hot, which would kill your starter. Completely dry the starter and it should peel off the parchment. When you pick up a piece, it will be brittle and easily snap between your fingers. If you have a scale, weigh it. If you started with four ounces starter on your parchment, it should weigh two ounces or very close when it's completely dry. And then it says, break it into pieces. Break the starter into small chips with your hands or place it in a plastic bag and pulverize it with something heavy. Can you run it through a food processor? Yes, but not necessary. Just break it into chips as best as you can. And then you want to store it airtight. Store the starter airtight, preferably in a glass container. 
You want something totally inert with an airtight cover. A glass jar is perfect. Date the jar and label it. You don't want someone throwing it away during the course of some pantry spring cleaning. Keep the jar of dried starter in a cool, dark place if possible. Not cool as in refrigerator, just not sitting in the hot sun or over your wood stove. Be sensible. And then it tells how you can bring it back to life. So when you're ready to revive the starter, measure out one ounce, about an eighth of it, if you've been following a regular feeding pattern, and had about eight ounces starter on hand at the beginning of the drying process. You don't have a scale, depending on the size of your chips, this will be between a fourth and a third of a cup. Then you want to mix the starter with lukewarm water. Place the dried starter chips in large, at least one pint container. Add two ounces, which is a fourth of a cup, of lukewarm water. The water should barely cover the chips. Tamp them down if necessary. Stir the chips and water occasionally. It'll take about three hours or so with infrequent attention to dissolve the chips. Feed it with flour. Once the mixture is fairly smooth liquid with perhaps just a couple of small undissolved chips, feed it with one ounce, about a fourth of a cup of unbleached all-purpose flour. Cover it lightly. A shower cap works well here. See, there's that shower cap again. And place it somewhere. Uh, this time it should really expand quickly. In my 85 degree Fahrenheit oven, it took just four hours for it to triple in size. Your starter is now revived and healthy. So, you know, that's... Um... Oh, wait. No, I missed some steps. Okay. So, yeah, they like to use the oven... Let it rest somewhere until it bubbles, and then you want to feed it again like you normally would feed your starter. I'll share all these um, steps on here, but I just thought that was really cool. I didn't know that you could do that. And I did, actually. I saw it on Etsy. Somebody was selling chips of starter, and I was like, how does that work? Um, and then I found this recipe. So, again, this is uh, King Arthur's Baking Company. Their website is amazing. And for those that do homeschooling, um, I was looking through their website when I was looking at these recipes, and I actually found they do um, like a, a homeschool group, um, and you have to apply for it. It usually starts out, um, they say they open it back up in, in the summer, but it's called Small Group Baking, and I'll, again, I'll share this link too. It's for grades 4 through 12. It was formerly called self-directed. It's for groups of 10 or more students, perfect for individual classes, after-school clubs, scouts, and homeschool groups. Students watch the Bake for Good instructional video, and the teacher or group leader guides them. And then each student will receive baking supplies to share and bake together in pairs or teams. Um, and so basically, you just sign up for this, and they'll send you the materials, and there's a video you can watch. And I had actually talked about doing a... Um, small group, you know, with the homeschool group that we're a part of, and I may very well do that. I'm going to sign up for this, and you know, however, whenever that opens back up, it says usually like the end of May, so I'm going to check that out, um, and I will share my recipe that I use for bread, and there's so many more recipes you can use for all your discards and things like that, and again, I'll share all that info um, on my Telegram channel. It is a very good recipe. Thank you, sir. Um, let's see. Where is that recipe? I've been using this one now for the past, I don't know, however many months we've been baking now. Um, so you need one cup of your fed sourdough starter, one and a half cups of lukewarm water, five cups of all-purpose flour divided, 
uh, a tablespoon of sugar. I prefer to add a little bit more sugar in mine. I normally do honey. I don't use, you know, granulated sugar. I'll just use two tablespoons of honey and um, two and a quarter teaspoons of salt. So when you're getting your bread ready, you, um, in a large bowl, combine the starter, water, and then three cups of flour. You're going to beat it vigorously for one minute. Then you're going to cover it with a shower cap and let it rest at room temperature for four hours. After the four hours is up, then uh, I cover mine in my stoneware and I put it in my fridge. And then they want you to refrigerate it overnight for about 12 hours. And after you pull it out in the morning, um, you're going to add the remaining two cups of flour, sugar, and kosher salt. And then you're going to knead that to form a smooth dough. You can knead it by hand or you can use a dough hook attached to an electric mixer, which is my method because I don't know if you've ever tried mixing it by hand. I'm like, Matt, my arm's going to fall off. Please come help me <laughs> because I can't mix this anymore. Um, and it says, note, the sourdough bread, especially sourdough without added yeast, can be finicky and may not go exactly to the written plan. Please allow yourself to go with the flow and not treat this as an exact to the minute process. Yes. You, again, you have to have patience for this. And I think, too, that's one thing that really throws people off about sourdough baking. It's like, oh, gosh, it's going to take forever. I don't have time. I didn't think I had time. But really, it's not so much that you are spending so much time with the dough. It's you're allowing the dough to do what it's meant to do. You just kind of set it and forget it, you know. Uh, so when the dough is ready, um, you want to um, transfer it to whatever you're going to bake it in. Again, I like to use my, my Dutch oven or my stoneware. And so, again, the less you mess with it, the better it's going to be. It's going to have all those air bubbles and whatnot. So um, I'll divide it after I've kneaded it and my arm hasn't fallen off. I divide it in half and then I set it to wherever I'm going to bake it at. Um, and you can put some flour on top, you know, however you want to do it if you like your crusty. Um, and then you form it into your, your French loaves or whatever. And then you're going to let it rise for usually it says two to four hours. Again, this all depends on how warm it is in your house. You know, um, sometimes I'll throw it in the oven. Like I said, it's been colder this past week. So I've just thrown it in the oven on the proofing button and just kind of let it do its thing. Last week, I was able to just leave it out on the counter and it rose beautifully. Um, weather really does make an impact on your bread. Um and then it says towards the end of the rising time, you want to preheat your oven to 425. And it says spray the loaves with lukewarm water. Um, and then you slash your loaves right before you get ready to throw it in the oven. It says if you make round loaves, um, try one slash across the center and a curved slash on each side or a slash in the pattern of your choice. For oval loaves, two diagonal slashes are fine. Make the slashes fairly deep. A serrated bread knife works well here. Um, and then you're going to bake it for 25 to 30 minutes until it's very deep golden brown. Um, I've tried in my Dutch oven both with the lids on and the lids off. And this past time we actually did with the lids off. And I like the way it came out better this time. Um, you know, it, it's up to you however you choose to bake it. We used to bake it, um, I think we did like 15, 20 minutes with the lid on. And then we take it off for the remainder of the time. That works too. 
Um, again, I don't know if it's just the weather or what, but when we took the lid off and we baked it the whole time, it just seemed to work better for us. And obviously when you pull it out of the oven, you want to put it on a cool rack and kind of let it sit. Um, and then for storing it, you can just put it in a plastic bag and plastic wrap. I've got bread bags that I bought off of Amazon um, and I just leave it in there and kind of roll it up and that works really well. They're paper wooden or paper bags. <laughs> Zero says I'm hungry. Me too. I've got sourdough pizza dough waiting upstairs and I have to make the kids a pizza with tonight. So I don't know how that's going to turn out. I will let you all know how that turned out. But again, there's just so many different recipes. You can make sourdough biscuits, which we're doing keto. So I, I do sourdough Sundays now. That's when I allow myself to, to enjoy some bread. Um, pancakes. Uh, there's like a cinnamon bread that I saw. Um, yeah, cinnamon quick bread. This is going to be next on my list here. Um, there's just so many good recipes. And again, I will share all the links. I'm going to put together a nice little PDF pamphlet for everybody that's interested. And I will share all the knowledge with you that I've, I've learned. I've read so many books and tried so many different recipes and, you know, you're going to make mistakes. And that's the one thing, again, you have to allow yourself that patience because this is a very time consuming, um, you're not just going to pick it up overnight. It's not like you just throw some ingredients together and throw it in a pan and bake you some bread. You know, you do have to put a lot of love and time and finesse into it. And it's so worth it. You know, that starter, I can tell you from when I first started till now, the taste, the way the bread tastes, you can just, how about it, Matt? Like yep. <laughs> that sourdough. And when I first started baking sourdough, Matt's like, what are you doing? Do you even like sourdough? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> But now we love it and it's really good having like with a stew or, um, you know, like a chili or even just, you know, having a, a dinner and having the kids help me, um, you know, they're learning the process and it's something that I can pass on to my children and then hopefully someday they could pass on to theirs. They know what the starter looks like. They know what it tastes like. You know, I was just going off of what I saw the people doing online and recipe books and things like that. But when you have somebody showing you how to make something like this, you know, I really think this is what God intended. It's not so much even about the eating and enjoying the bread, but it's, it's lessons that you learn. You're learning patience. And, you know, me, I pray over everything, my garden, my cooking, my children, you know, and just to sit there and spend that time with them. Now, you know, my kids will wake up in the morning, mom, can we make pancakes? Sure. Go ahead. You know, I'm right here with them. And, um, it's just watching them flourish and, and homeschooling, allowing them. I was talking with a mom today. We went roller skating and we had kickball and, you know, just talking with these other moms and they're like, you know, I'm watching my kids grow and they're able to, to find out what they like and what they don't like. And, you know, my boys, they like to cook and my girls can care less. And, you know, some people are like, oh, women should be in the kitchen. You know, I joke about, I'm not, I don't care. I'm not all about the sexism and, you know, how dare you say that? But it's just funny to me that, you know, especially my youngest boy, he loves to be in the kitchen and he kills it in there. You know, like he does some gourmet stuff at the table and I'm like, B, what are you doing, bud? And he'll put a little garnish of lettuce on his little stuff. I'm like, okay, you know. But it, it's just wonderful spending time with these kids and, and just watching them grow and and teaching them. We're learning together, you know. I was never taught how to make sourdough, but I learned by reading and researching. And, and now I'm able to share with them and I can share with all of you here and, you know, those who will listen later on. Um, I, 
you know, don't be intimidated by sourdough. I can tell you it is so worth it. And again, it's not just the eating. It's, um, it's just the whole method behind it, you know, the method, the madness behind the method. Um, maybe you already covered it, but if not, how do you use the starter for pancakes? So there's so many different recipes for that. Um, this one that I have in this book, I'll share the recipe for that. Let me see. Okay, so this is the one from that book that I read from from the beginning. It says you're going to need one and a half cups of sourdough starter, three cups of unbleached all-purpose flour, a cup of warm water, a tablespoon of sugar, a quarter teaspoon salt, a half a teaspoon baking soda, a tablespoon of baking powder, a cup of milk, two eggs, and then a quarter cup of vegetable oil. So it says the night before making the flapjacks, take the sourdough starter from the refrigerator and allow it to come to room temperature. And if you're like me and you have some sitting on your car, you don't have to wait for that. But I would feed it um, a couple hours prior to making the flapjacks. So if you're going to make them for breakfast, you know, at eight o'clock, then maybe get up at six and just feed it real quick and then wait. Um, then you're going to measure out one and a half cups of sourdough starter and put it in a glass mixing bowl. Put the rest of the starter back in the fridge. Add one and a half cups of the unbleached flour, one cup of warm water to the bowl. Mix well. Uh, cover with a towel. Oh, and you got to let it sit overnight. Oh, my goodness gracious. See, I had not done these yet. See, and that's the thing with sourdough. Everything is you have to let it sit. Um, and then uh, this is called proofing. Make a very sour sponge by spreading the wild yeast throughout the dough. The next day, measure out two cups of the proof sourdough sponge. Pour the leftover sponge into the refrigerated starter jar. Then return the two cups of sponge. Spray the vegetable oil on the griddle or skillet and heat on medium-high until drops of water sprinkled on the griddle jump around. Um, have an adult help pour the batter into a four-inch wide cake on the skillet on medium heat. So basically how you would make your, your regular... Um, and cakes. Turn each flapjack over with the spatula and cook on the other side. And you could serve with brown sugar. Interesting. So yeah, again, this is <laughs> not the one you have to let it sit. That's, and you got to have patience. When I'm telling you, you have to have patience. You need to have a lot of patience because everything is like letting it rise, you know. And, and I guess it's because you're using the natural yeast from the air. If we were just using the store-bought, but learning how to do this, because what if there does come a day when we can't just go to the store and buy yeast? We know how to do it, um, you know, natural. Uh, what book is that from? So this book is called Skillet Bread, Sourdough, and Vinegar Pie. It's a children's book, Cooking in Pioneer Days. It's by Loretta Francis Icord, I-C-H-O-R-D. It's really, it's a cute book. It, you know, it's all hand-drawn and they've got just so, so much history in it and lots of good recipes of vinegar pie. I've never had that and I had never heard of it before. But, you know, you think back to how people survived during, you know, those times and it's, it's just really cool to be able to teach to the kids and kind of experience a piece of that history. So, and you're very welcome. But again, like I said, I will be sharing all of the recipes that I have and the books and pictures and, you know, things like that on the Telegram channel. Um, if you're not on Telegram and you want the, the PDF that I'm 
in the process of creating, um, just send us an email at the casting lots podcast at gmail.com. And I will share all of this wonderful information that I have with you. Um, and, you know, if you have questions, you can feel free to email us. Again, I'm by no means an expert on bread baking or sourdough baking, um, but it's fun. And again, it's just something great and wonderful to do with the kids, grandkids, you know, nieces, nephews, um, teaching the little people, you know, the ways of the past and just kind of how to survive. You know, if we don't have but we need to make bread to survive. We know how to do it, you know? So anyways, I just want to thank you all so very much for joining us tonight. Um, I know Conley's on right now, so I'm just going to go ahead and, and close us in prayer. So if you would, please just bow your heads. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you yet once again for giving us this time tonight, Lord. I thank you for for giving me the knowledge on, on how to bake bread and, and giving me the patience to learn how to do this, especially with the kids. Um, I thank you for, for all the many blessings and, and the people that I have in my life, Lord. Um, I just ask that you continue guiding me, giving me the eyes to see and the ears to hear, and those around us, Lord, that you know we can open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to you, Lord, so that we can just hear your message and share it with the world, Lord. You gave us each a gift and um, we know that we're supposed to go out into the world and, and to share that gift and spread it with others, Lord. And I pray that we continue doing your will for you, Lord. Um, again, for those that are just suffering or hurting right now, Lord, and, and I pray they hear this message, Lord, and that they turn into you. I know so many truly are struggling, Lord, and we just ask that you be with them, be with their families and and those that are sick or need healing, Lord, just be with them. Uh, for Sharon, Lord, um, just be with her and her grandkids as they're still struggling the loss of, of her daughter and their mother, Lord. Um, and for all those unspoken prayers, Lord, you know what they are. Just help heal the many that need your healing right now, Lord. And just let them know that you truly do love them. You are Father and you know best. And we just have to continue trusting that you, you'll never do us wrong. You'll never lead us astray, Lord. Um, and just continue giving us the patience to listen to you. Even when we think we know best, Lord, it is you who truly knows what's best for us. And we just need to learn to listen to that. Um, so please just continue guiding us and being with us. And in your son, Jesus Christ's holy name, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you all again so much for joining. I hope you learned a little something tonight. Again, I know sourdough sounds so hard and crazy, and it's really not. It's really a lot of fun. I always joke and call it, you know, pita um, because it does need love. But when I go in there and I mix it, you know, it's just kind of become part of my routine. I'm going to go upstairs, you know, and start making dinner. And so when I've got everything out, that's when I feed mine. So I don't forget to feed it. It's like we're eating. And so, you know, the starter she she needs to eat too so um you know and, and again i'm not an expert but i can try to help you in any way possible if you have questions you want recipes you want a good book to read you can ask matt he tells me because i buy so many books from thrift books but um <clears throat> i like to you know get all of these old books you know that's really where we learn everything is just store-bought now and um i've got a really good book it's called arizona cookbook Indian, Mexican, Western, Arizona products, backpacking, camping, patio barbecue. I bought this from 
uh, eBay. This one is from eBay. And it's got so many great recipes. A lot of, like, you know, Southwestern recipes. Um, really awesome book. This is one of my favorites. Uh, the Homemade Sourdough, Easy at Home Artisan Bread Making. So much good information in that book. And then, again, the King Arthur Baking Company. They've got a book called Baking School. And there's lessons and recipes for every baker. And Chapter 2 is all about sourdough. So any questions you have about that, you know, they're in there. Um, really so many good books. And of course, one that I had mentioned earlier, the skillet bread, sourdough and vinegar pie. That's a good one for kids. You want to show kids, you want to explain to them, you know, why we're, we're making it this way. Um, and just the history, you know, it's just so important that we kind of pass it on to our kids. So when I have a hard time enough feeding myself, I would kill it. No, you wouldn't Douglas, you could do it. <laughs> and you're welcome wizard. Thank you. Have a good night, everybody. Um, hurry up and head on over to Conley, the Conley show right now. I'm sure he's got a lot of great information to share. Um, and then of course, Bards FM, um, and then Duncan shows on tonight. And then of course, uh, Fishers of Men tonight. Um, so many good shows. Um, you don't want to miss, you know, I've got to go up there now and, and try this sourdough pizza dough and see how that comes out. I'm praying it's going to come out good, but we will see. So again, thank you all so very much for joining. I wish you all have a very blessed night and um, keep leaning into Jesus. He's never going to lead us astray. So God bless you all. Since a formula bottle, decent, sitized, everything we knew about our problems. And now we're all roaming the land, saying, Now did this big lie start? It's time to put our faith in Him, cause it's gone too far. Oh, I believe He died for me. For everyone Anything can be achieved When you count on God Who's gonna take the lead By putting the life on line Who's gonna show the children What is wrong and what is right Who's gonna take the lead By putting the life on line of Christ washes every sin by the minute the sheep are blind all because their mind is a prison and now they're all roaming the land saying how did this big lie start it's time they put their faith in him cause it's gone too far oh I believe he died for me and for everyone Anything can be achieved When you count on God Who's gonna take the lead By putting the life on line Who's gonna show the truth
Children, what is wrong and what is right? 